Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain, or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. Suffering Steve Ditko! What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. We are entering the latter half of Wet Hot Mutant Summer. And this week is one of my picks. We are going to be discussing X-Force issues number 116 and 117. And these issues have nothing to do with X-Force as anyone thinks of it. These are essentially the first couple issues of the run that on the whole will later change its name and be better known as X-Statics. The creative team we have going here is writer Peter Milligan, artist Michael Allred, Laura Allred on colors and separations with Michael Allred and Blambot having lettering credits and Ecstatics and the brief period when it was X-Force before that is something of like a cult favorite X-Book from the early 2000s. Specifically, these issues are from 2001 and just another example in my ongoing case that the early 2000s are an underrated period for X-Men comics. I mean, the Grant Morrison run did start in 2001. I feel like it's not underrated. Well, what I mean is like, like everyone knows that new X-Men is great, but I think we need a little more attention to what else was going on too. And this book gets some of that. It's like the people who know about it largely love it, but it's also just kind of a weird little side thing that a lot of people also have not read. So as the first time reader here, what's your first impression? There's literally one character that I recognize, and it's the one that looks like a ball of snot. The one that's like the creature from Ghostbusters? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he looks just like Slimer. You're right. Yeah, that's dupe. If Slimer was team videographer. Yeah, the one character who is incapable of understandable speech, and he's probably the most famous character in this little part of the franchise. Unless I'm mistaken, isn't he, like, the only one who's really appeared in anything other than, like, 
this run of next four is like statics and excellent, which is the current version of this. Yeah, I can't think of any other cases of the others showing up like at all. I don't think any of these bitches have even been on Krakoa. Yeah. I mean, I think it was good. I like Alred's art. Uh, I, I mean, I, I picked the last time we covered anything, you know, with Alred, and I think there's always a, a sort of, like, general tone you have to do to make Alred's art work, and I think that this nails it. Like, y you know, Alred's art can be sort of anywhere in terms of the content, but I think the tone always has to be this, like, slightly silly, irre irreverent, like, actively weird book. Like, I don't think you could put him on Punisher. He's got to be on something odd. And if he's on something odd and funny, it'll work every time. I agree. And I think these are a great example of that. But for listeners who don't know anything about these comics, I suppose I'll sort of try and explain what these actually are and why they're so different from regular X-Force. But essentially, this run is about a team of celebrity mutants. It's like they are a combat team. They do go out on missions and like try to save civilians and fight quote unquote bad guys, etc., etc., but all of their exploits are very specifically televised because they are also essentially reality TV stars. It is a team made up of mutants, but they have nothing to do with the Xavier Institute. They are not affiliated with the X-Men, nor are they affiliated with any other related team to include having no relation to the prior iterations of X-Force. And essentially, these two opening issues lay the groundwork for this setup of a new team of X-Force as celebrities with varying relations to their identities as mutants and sense of self and sort of relation to society at large and culture and to a large degree are just sort of trying to do the best that they can for themselves in this weird little sort of fetishized niche where mutant hatred is still a thing, but they kind of are able to get by with more financial and social clout by being like TV stars does that sound like a decent sum up of what this is? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. The weirdest thing about it to me reading it is that like when you start the first issue, it, this has already all happened. Like it's already an ongoing thing. And we're introduced to all these brand new characters who are already in like we don't get the start of the team or anything. And I'm like, wasn't there there was an X-Force book, like, the last month, where X-Force was still a title being used, like, a name as a team being used by the, like, former New Mutants plus... Is that the Warren Ellis era where it's, like, Pete Wisdom leading them for some insane reason? Oh, well, because Warren Ellis. Let me see if I can pull up on Marvel Unlimited real quick. I honestly That's have right. no idea which... um 
I have no idea who was on the book right before this. I assume it wasn't going well because uh, they did this. Yeah. I'm seeing on X-Force number 115, I'm seeing a writer, Ian Edgington, and penciler Ariel Olivetti, and Jorge Pereira Lucas, none of whom I've ever heard of. So I'm assuming that this is not a run that is very talked about because I've never heard any of those names and none of these covers look familiar like anything I've ever heard referenced again. Just scrolling down, seeing like the last 20 issues or so, they all kind of look like they're from the late 90s, but they're from 2000, which I guess, I mean, yeah, but it's the kind of thing they're doing in 96 when I'm like, reading right now in my big read through and i can tell you i'm already sick of it so even just judging by the covers and like the creative teams which no disrespect to the people i just listed but clearly marvel was not putting like heavy hitter creative talent on like it definitely looks like a book where it was just sort of meandering and then editorial decided what are we going to do with this let's go bombastic and do something really different and give us the milligan all red stuff it's so weird that this is just like this would never be number 116 now you know it would be probably like a revival of some team name that's been like left alone for a while like champions was and it would be a new number one and like, this is just an entirely different book than whatever was happening before, because whatever was happening before is clearly still about the original X-Force team. Yeah, like, even just looking at, like, the title and the numerology, this is so clearly, like, just an example of how much the industry has changed. Because, like, as you said, this would be a number one now. Like, even if there were more similarities between like the X-Force before and then like in this book, you know, like Marvel does relaunches constantly now as opposed to like the idea of any X-Book reaching issue 116 now is just unthinkable. Is there a new writer on it? Great. It's a new number one. Two Squirrel Girl number ones in one year even. That one is especially impressive. I, that's because of, like, Secret Wars, really. They didn't do any retooling or anything. It's just, like, the timing on that and how it worked out and, like, the whole gimmick of Secret Wars being, like, cancelling all the books. But then, basically, all of them came back. I think, actually, all of them came back. Certainly, everything I read has a pre and post. Yeah. A different time when we could get a whole new innovative concept in an issue 116 but away from secret war and back to early 2000s x-force yes. um our point of view character for issue 116 i'm not gonna go like completely in order plot wise i'm gonna sort of meander around a little bit in terms of characters and themes but yeah. i'm gonna mostly cover 116 before diving into 117 because 
of a certain dramatic way that this issue ends, which obligatory spoiler warning is always we're going to spoil he's talking about them but in issue number 116 the first of the two issues we're discussing today our point of view character is axel aka zeitgeist is his mutant name and he is a well-built muscular conventionally attractive blonde man in his approximately 20s or 30s, who basically looks human, you know, in terms of, like, the X-verse and mutants and metaphor and everything. You get, like, the mutant characters who could quote-unquote pass as human, and then those who do not. And Zeitgeist, for the most part, could, with the exception with the exception of on the lower half of his face, he has this sort of golden half mask that presumably helps in some way with controlling his powers but otherwise you know he could pass for not just a human but like oh it makes sense that you're a tv celebrity because you're conventionally hot you know and zeitgeist's power is gross a lot of these characters we're going to talk about have weird fucked up powers which is part of just the weird vibe to the whole book where Zeitgeist's ability is basically just like vomiting up some sort of like toxic acidic sludge onto people. Yeah, it's it's fucking nasty. And we specifically open with a flashback that he has to when he was a teenager and his mutant powers triggered and he couldn't control it and he barfed his like acid all over a girl's face he literally has chambers backstory as a teenager he got horny with a girl and then you know his mouth opened up and accidentally uh in this case probably apparently she was alive so just horribly disfigured her and like melted half her face off yeah that's the nightmare that this issue starts with but despite how it sounds, this is a very campy book. Oh, it's um, incredibly silly. Yeah. This is like a really effective intro to Zeitgeist's character in that it sort of lays the groundwork for his sort of sense of shame and general unhappiness around being a mutant. Because, you know, if that was a pivotal growing up memory for you. Obviously that would lead to some fucked up complexes going on. And I don't know if I already specified this. Um, He's not just the point of view character. Zeitgeist is specifically the field leader of X-Force. Um, He's like the senior member, the one in charge, works most closely with the management figure in terms of just sort of keeping the team under control and dealing with internal squabbles and such. And it's just very clear throughout that Zeitgeist is always very tense and has a complicated to just plain negative relationship to mutanthood to include just a few pages in 
when he's describing the team's latest mission, because as you said, uh, this book essentially opens with the team already existing. It doesn't waste time being like, here's how this version of X-Force came to be. It just sort of delivers the idea and is like, this is what we're doing. We're going from here. And Zeitgeist is watching footage of their last mission where a teammate named Sluck was killed. And Sluck basically has like a bipedal human body, but then like a head that just is composed of like tentacles with googly eyes. And in his narration, Zeitgeist says, Ah, the death of Sluck, probably no great loss. He was only really useful at close range with his creepy face fangs. And I might be a mutant, but I kind of like the members of my team to look at least half human. Zeitgeist's a douche. He's a self-hating mutant. Also, Sluck reminds me of the Jagaroth from Doctor Who. I don't know that reference yet. The classic story, City of Death. Um, there's a villain who's played by, um, oh my, my god, Julian Glover. And when he pulls up his Julian Glover face, he is a bunch of weird tentacles in the general shape of a head with googly eyes on it. But yeah, visually, that's like the thing I first thought of when I saw him. Yeah. Um, Zeitgeist is like really fucked up though. Even he's got two women like in underwear that he's hanging out with and like presumably about to fuck while he's got like video footage of this battle where he's vomiting acid onto people and like his teammates are being killed on in the background. And the women specifically like talk to him and speculate about how they think that him watching old mission footage isn't just tactics but that also turns him on before they spend time together and he says that it doesn't hurt it's like the worst netflix and chill session ever the absolute worst as we see like the free figures in silhouettes with the tv screen behind them of just like a decaying corpse Axel has a lot of issues. He hates mutants who look different from normal humans. He generally just kind of hates mutants in general, himself especially. He is very much a hard ass with the rest of the team, criticizes their decisions, their behaviors very frequently. And I want to go ahead and quote a monologue that he has later in the issue because I think it just really sells both his attitude and a lot about the book. Money, fame, sex, cars, houses, champagne, talk shows, cafes, limousines, immortality, luck, just the peanuts they throw at us. They'd hate us if we couldn't do this. They'd fear us. They adore us now. They know why we're here, what the point of us is. But I'm still a mutant, you idiots. I'm still 14 years old. I burnt off that girl's face. I'm a freak, and I hate you all. And that really just perfectly sums his character up. And I think... I just think the character and the concept are really bold. You know, one thing that 
new X-Men around this time gets a lot of credit for is just sort of its emphasis on and contributions to the idea of mutants as a subculture, you know, of like, oh, if we have this fantasy minority, then like any other sort of demographic group, you know, they would have their own culture, cultures, plural, even, you know, sort of tensions between subculture relations to dominant culture concepts of how that could relate to fame and celebrity and comfortability and perception and this run on x-force really delves into all of that in a way that i really love and to go back for a minute to the all red art of it all as we've said this book is really silly but there's also just freakish shit going on with zeitgeist like watching the tapes of like murder and his teammates dying and it's all hyper violent but something about all red style makes it so that he could do like anything and it would never need a max imprint logo because it's so twisted and cartoony and yet, there's so much just extreme violence. Like, how would you describe the way that Allred sort of deals with this subject matter, I suppose? I think his style, you know, with it, it's very intentionally sort of, it looks... Like, he's the guy you get to draw normally a comic that's, like, meant to feel silver agey and retro. And so when it's applied to something like this that is actually very, like, in terms of the subject matter, it's very mature and it's very, like, the the plot and the themes and so on are very up-to-date about celebrity culture and stuff like that that's very relevant to the early 2000s. It kind of neutralizes, like, the, the, the grimdark energy of it. You know, this book is clearly extremely cynical about all of these people. Like, I don't think any of these people are, like, Certainly no one we meet in this first issue especially is like any good at all as a person. And I feel like if it was drawn by someone else, it would probably be too much. But the fact that they all look I mean, most of them are wearing like the original X-Men training uniforms, basically. Like, it's very much a callback aesthetically to stuff from the 60s in terms of the way the characters are dressed. And, like, some of these designs, I'm like, Jack Kirby could have designed the character who looked like that. It wouldn't shock me if he did. Like, the yeah. guy, the big guy with ram's horns, I'm like, that's not that far from, like, a, a Thing or a Hulk or, you know, some of his monster characters. Like, yeah, I, I think he's he blunts sort of the edge of it, but in, like, a good way that makes it more palatable. I think you're right, yeah. And... Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned the sort of like 60s sort of retro little flavor that's in there as well. And the colors, too, I think all sort of really heighten this. We're just like the coloration is so like bright and poppy that the book could like never come across as grim dark, even as it's dealing with all of the subject matter. In terms of the other characters, yeah, it's like. Nearly everyone comes off as extremely flawed to terrible. 
you know, like I think there's a few where, oh, there's probably some shades of gray here, like room for, oh, what is the world made of you sort of thing. And then a couple others just seem like total assholes, you know, just sort of that celebrity vibe. But going beyond Zeitgeist, we have the coach who coach is essentially the professor x or the miles calder from doom patrol he is the creepy old white man who's sort of largely the boss but isn't actually on missions and the name coach sort of plays into again that celebrity sort of thing that sort of spectacle that almost like x-men team as like a sports team sort of thing and i love the way all red draws him specifically because he has these incredibly sunken eyes where it's like so extreme it's almost as if his eyes don't fill the entire socket there's just like these giant like black rings around them and his eyes are so entirely bloodshot. And it's just really giving disgusting, morally horrible old white guy boss. To me, he just looks like he's got gambit eyes, basically. Gambit eyes? Yeah, the black with the red. Yeah, that makes sense. Now that you mention it. In terms of the other members of X-Force proper that are on the field team... Most of them don't get much time on page to really dive into a lot because this is one issue establishing an entirely new set of characters and concepts that they're operating within. But the main two of note going forward are You Go Girl, who is Edie Sawyer, she is a teleporter whose power always tires her out when she uses it. So she sort of has like a drug reliance of like a prescribed medication that she uses when she has to, to sort of get her energy back up to be able to keep teleporting. And she's the next senior member after Axel. And she's clearly vying for the leadership spot. She really wants the promotion. Meanwhile, the other really notable new character here is Tyke Alakar, a.k.a. the Anarchist, who is the newest member of X-Force in this issue in sort of a example of the, like, celebrity TV spectacle thing. We see, like, the literal press conference of his joining the team being announced and everything before like a bunch of reporters and I like his character a lot um in terms of what we see here Tyke has a lot of concerns about like his position on the team racially speaking and how Zeitgeist views him Tyke is a black man specifically there's a scene where he's talking to one reporter about being both black and a mutant and that's going to sort of be a running theme throughout this series beyond what we read today in terms of his fears about 
his stability on the team and sort of like his life as a black celebrity and a black mutant celebrity. And he sort of brings that lens to the table and the story. And he largely plays into the sort of reality TV character role where he talks about like being expected to bring drama. And so like publicly goes on tirades, criticizing his fellow X-Force members and things like that. And those three sort of form the main little trio that the team or that the story revolves around in this issue in a lot of ways, while the rest are just sort of a bit parts. But I need to shout out Jin Genie, whose power is essentially causing seismic, what do you call them? Like earthquakes, like, um, yeah, she's got earthquake powers, but like needs to be drunk to do it. Yeah. Like making more intense earthquakes, depending on how much alcohol she's had. And this character is so brilliant. <laughs> like, again, just the reality TV of it all, the fucked up celebrity of it all. Here we have a character whose role on the team is literally dependent on her drug use. And again, just leads into more cat fighting with you go girl and just like alcoholic anonymous jokes. And I love Jin Genie. It's all very funny. It's all extremely fucked up. But yeah, you got Jin Genie. You have Battering Ram, who is the sort of like <laughs> big purple guy with horns. You have a couple lovers. Really, the rest of the characters don't matter because, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But the issue sort of spends most of its time establishing Zeitgeist and Yugo Girl and the Anarchist and just very briefly introduces the rest of the team, but they're less critical. And once we sort of establish who everyone is, we get Coach explaining to the team what their next mission is going to be. And essentially they're going to go try to rescue a boy band named boys are us. That's boys with a Z and R just the letter R boys are us. It's nearly as good as boys for now from um, Bob's burgers. Yeah, I love it. And all Red's renditions of them are perfect, too, in terms of just like, oh, here's every sort of look that I would expect from that, like, period, little boy band sort of aesthetic. And essentially, Boys Are Us are being held ransom by a bunch of gunmen who have resolved to kill a member of the band every hour until the record company pays them $10 million. And the record execs are playing hardball because their sales have been going down and they figure that if the guys all get killed, that'll just boost sales. So they're not especially worried about if a couple of the guys get off. But 
X Factor is going to go to save the rest of the boy band, whatever they can do for just like a little bit of goodwill publicity. Like, you know, they're waning, but these guys still have their fans, you know, they're doing this for public relations of just like trying to counteract negative press from them just all acting like rich assholes. They're going to go try and save some other rich assholes, essentially. And you go girl uses her teleportation powers, teleports them in. And we then get just all the action of them frantically fighting the gunmen, trying to save the remaining boys arrest members. And it's during the scene that Zeitgeist gives a lot of the narration that I quoted earlier about just like celebrity and being a freak. And at a point in the fight, Zeitgeist makes his way to a window where he is stunned to see that some sort of like attack helicopter has arrived on the scene and essentially decimates the fuck out of both him and Battering Ram. And as he's dying, Zeitgeist has this flashback again to his younger self and the girl who he vomited on. And we then sort of transition out of that sort of memory scene, little like dying death dream as he's being clutched by you go girl and her and the anarchist are there together around his body, which has had like his entire stomach blown off. Like his legs are detached. There's just a shitload of entrails all over the ground. And as Edie is freaking out, she asks Tyke how the others are. And he says, the others? There are no others. And the last page of this issue is a zoom out with only you go girl, the anarchist, and Dupe being left alive as Dupe is recording the scene of everyone else's totally blown up bodies. It has just been a bloodbath. And essentially this issue has introduced us to an entirely new team, entirely new setup. And immediately by the end of the issue, almost every new character that we just met is dead to include our narrative point of view and zeitgeist. And I think it's really fucking cool. Like it's really fucking bold and just the audacity. They should do stuff like this more often. Yeah. Like, can you imagine a single issue comic in the X line right now trying to do what this did? Yes, but only because they'd be able to bring all the characters back the next issue. Maybe not after, I think it's next month, is Fall of X, and, you know, Resurrection's probably off the table, right? Like, that's what they're gonna do. We'll see. But, like, within just the context of 2001, like, I guess this is another way in which it's different from current comics, is just, like, Everything I just described 
took place over the course of 21 pages. You know, just a single issue. Like we talk about now, like writing for the trade and decompression and the story arcs that are six issues and sometimes don't even feel like they've effectively set up everything they tried to do. Whereas this single issue, I guess I'm curious if you agree or not, but I feel like it does such a good job of introducing the mutant celebrity concept and also sort of underlying the mutant celebrity as expendable and like who can get fame, but whose mutant status is still notable and they'll still never quite be human in the eyes of society and just like oh they got all this clout and all this status and look they're still fucking dead i agree that this issue did that really well but like i mean we still get it really depends on the writer as to whether or not we're gonna get like good single issues or whether we're gonna get like those big arcs like I mean, at the time that this came out, Ultimate Spider-Man was happening, and I can't think of a book that's more decompressed than Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, meanwhile, we'll still talk about, like, issues of Hickman or Gillen's X-Men stuff from, like, the past couple years by, like, the issue numbers. Because they are these self-contained, like, really strong single issues frequently. That's a good point, yeah. I think... Hickman and you sort of single issue X-Men comics are probably some of the best examples of that in recent memory. I I think that like most people are still are nowadays doing like three issue arcs, like the kind of thing you'd see a lot back in the 80s or indeed in the early 2000s, like new X-Men, where basically everything is a three issue arc. And then there was this period not long after this comic came out where, yeah, everyone went to that writing for the trade, you know, six-issue miniseries for every story, essentially, which was a bad, bad idea. But, like, yeah, I, I I, think that that aspect of it isn't that unique, but I do think it's a very good, very effective issue. Yeah. Did you notice in the scene where we get the news coverage of the X-Force Cafe because... Money, money, this is a business. There are X-Force cafes with merchandise that you can buy. Did you Scott notice... Logan on a date there? Yep, Logan getting himself a dupe plushie. Well, and Scott's there as well. Is he? Yeah, red sunglasses. Let me look again. Oh. Yeah, I had never noticed. Went... They went together. I can't believe I've never noticed Scott right there. Yeah. Welp, Logan and Scott are on a date at the X-Force Cafe. Yeah, I mean, they didn't even bring Gene. What else is this? Welp, bonding during that tumultuous period in Scott's marriage by just going to the cafe and getting dupe dolls. I love the dupe merch. The little dupe-like beanie babies. I would buy a dupe beanie baby. Oh, yeah. Which, speaking of dupe, I'll just go ahead and talk about dupe for a minute. Like, he's very much like a mascot, more so than a character who actively drives drama, you know? 
because anytime he talks, there's not like actual human language being used. Like, I'm not sure how to describe like the lettering, but it's just sort of the indecipherable sort of text that one would see, say, like an alien language written in or something like that. You know, just like it looks fake like Kryptonese. Looks like what? Kryptonese. The language of, of Krypton. That's got like a set typeface, and this, this is pretty close to that. Okay. But yeah, like the like... circles and the, the sort of geometric lines of it all. Okay. But yeah, I, I mean, it's just stuff. Yeah. And like, he doesn't talk frequently. And when he does, it's the Kryptonese esque stuff. And he's basically just like the cameraman who's always in the corner or out of panel. But. I just think he has such a fun design and just really unique, just really extreme example of like, oh, if mutants can look like basically anything, we'll just have our mascot be the fucking Ghostbuster Slimer. Why not? I mean, that's why he's the one out of all of these characters, including all the ones in like the following omnibus worth of issues that appears anywhere else. Because people just like to draw him into things. He's a perfect, like, candidate to just put in, like, a mutant group shot in the background. The ultimate cameo queen, yeah. Yeah. But moving on into X-Force number 117, which sort of resets the stage all over again. Because it's like, previous issue, introduce the concept gets some of the drama going with the core characters, you know. But in this one, we sort of, like, continue their arcs going, but also have to introduce almost an entirely new team again because everybody just fucking died. So there's, like, five blank spots to fill on the team. And so in Zeitgeist Place... The member who is brought in to be the new leader of this X-Force is Guy Smith, a.k.a. Mr. Sensitive, a.k.a. The Orphan, because he'll have a moment of being like, that's what I want to go by instead of the name that you gave me and the whole like branding and choice of all that. But what do you think of Mr. Sensitive? I love his look. Like, just the, the character design, like, the weird bumpy gray skin and the uh, little antenna, and, like, also his sort of full superhero outfit with all the, the red and the white with the, like, circle patterns. Again, it feels like a really good, like, 60s design. I He's interesting so far. I do think that, like, of all the... This, this is the least combat-ready mutant power imaginable. Oh, yeah. Like... Oh yeah, uh, I'm such like my I'm my senses of touch and feeling are so sensitive that a shower that is just a mist because an actual shower would probably cause me enough pain to kill me still really fucking hurts. I'm like, why the hell are you sending this guy into combat? Literally, it's like my mutant power 
is hyper awareness to everything to the point where my senses are actively painful all the time and I have to wear a special suit to like dull it just enough to be able to even function (laughs) which while you're right about the combat readiness or non-readiness is just also like a very cool concept to me you know the sort of like oh the x-men aren't the only mutants and part of the whole fun of the concept of mutation is that you can do all sorts of shit and i just love this weird idea of taking it there in a way where it's also kind of just like mutation as a disadvantage instead of an advantage is really cool to me I love the weird, like, lumpy texture to the skin look as well. Lovely antenna, obviously. He's super cool to me. Mr. Sensitive is just a really interesting idea. And a lot of the second issue is comprised of, like, the tensions between Edie, Tyke, and Coach as they're talking about what happened on the last mission and about the prospect of bringing in a bunch of new team members and of, Oh, who's going to be the leader now. And real quick, before I dive more fully into the rest of the new characters or the rest of the new X-Force members, rather another moment that I love in a discussion between the surviving X-Force members and coach is When they're talking about the big bosses, because X-Force has just been bought, it has got a new owner, because again, this version of X-Force is basically a media property, and it's revealed that the new owner is a venture capitalist software trillionaire named Spike Freeman. They have literally been bought by some tech asshole. Yep. There's nothing more early 2000s than being bought out by, like, a 34-year-old in a uh, baseball cap. And the thing is that it only feels all the more relevant now, you know? I guess the age is maybe younger than most of our cultural crop of, like, Monopoly owners, but still, I just love the joke about the fucking venture capitalist owner that I don't know if it's even correct to say that it feels prescient. Now we have, like, weird, weird loser nerds. And I say that, like, as a pejorative, like, the pejorative version of that. We have, like, your, um, just, like, messed up little dickheads like Musk and um, Zuckerberg. Where, like, they're just fucked in the head in ways that are, yeah, anyway. Yeah. This character is very funny to me. We get like a lot more of him and the issues beyond this. Here he's just sort of introduced. But I just like love this again nod to this team as like a financial property. And after Spike is introduced, we then get a series of character introductions sort of giant size X-Men style of like 
here's five pages in a row introducing the whole crop of the new team to include I'm just going to quote a lot of this one about bloke he's big he's pink and he has impeccable taste in soft furnishings Mickey Tory cut his teeth working as a vigilante in the streets of San Francisco operating under his former name Rainbow Due to an evolving genetic condition, that name soon ceased to be appropriate. The big boy of the penchant for musical feeder and pumping iron soon found he possessed the uncanny chameleon ability to merge into his surroundings, then pink up and wreck havoc. He's just a big pink dude, and I don't think that it would have been humanly possible to call a character gay without saying gay more times in a single page than they just did. Yeah. They said this pink rainbow bitch from San Francisco who's good at interior decorating. Pumping iron and musical theater. Musical theater. Frankly, like, I'm not a musical theater person, but if I was... I would need you to simply never acknowledge it because there is no way that a straight person can point out a gay guy liking musical theater without just sounding like they're calling him a fag. It is the most go-to thing imaginable. But that's another thing I love about this run on X-Force and X-Statics. And because we only read the two issues for this week, you know... We don't really get into developments later in the story, but this series has a fair amount of gay characters in it, specifically a lot of gay men in a way that early 2000s superhero comics simply were not doing, you know, like, and when they were, it would be, oh, there's one, there's North Star, there's, uh, Well, I suppose in Wiccan and Hulkling, there's two, not just one. But point just being, a lot of gay characters at a period where that felt especially notable. And I like them all, largely. But It's also the period of, like, your Mark Millar, you know, Hulk not sissy boy, Hulk straight moments. We need to cover that. I need to see the full context on that. I need to read that. Uh, Ultimates, you actually haven't read Ultimates at all? Not in literally, like, 15 years, so I don't remember it very well at all. Yeah, uh, well... Hulk, not Sissy Boy. There's literally no con- the the context does not change the scene. It is exactly what it looks like. I really want to read that. Are you ever gonna- are you ever gonna pick the Ultimates? If we do an ultimate month, I will pick ultimates. Okay. I will pick ultimates and I'll pick uh, uh, ultimate Fantastic Four drawn by Greg Land because I'm not picking good comics for ultimate month. <laughs> it would feel inappropriate to pick good comics for ultimate month, wouldn't it? I Okay, so the thing is, is ultimates actually bad is a question that I don't think I can answer. Yeah. Like, that's the the thing about it is, is it, like, a massively influential, like, moment in comic book history? Yes. 
does it you know do a lot of like really interesting things with the characters and have like a lot of critiques of the early bush air administration's foreign policy yes does it also have hulk loudly declaring he's not a sissy boy and like going and murdering and eating a bunch of aliens because captain america has convinced them that they were calling him gay also yes and also wanda and pietro or sibling fucking yeah, but see, see, when Miller was doing it, I will defend Miller doing it because that was funny. Miller did it as a joke, and then after Miller left, everyone was like, "Oh, we we need to take this relationship seriously." I guess it became like plot relevant in a horrible way. See, this all sounds really awesome to me, <laughs> but I, it's. The Ultimate Universe, I actually think... I, I'm so glad it's back. Like, whatever yeah. they're doing, I think that the concept is great. The idea of having one is great. I think we should always have an Ultimate Universe where they're just doing stuff, and it's wild, and they don't have to worry about anything else, you know? Like, I'm very glad that they brought the concept back, and I'm hoping that the new ones are... E- age equally poorly. Yeah. Just make it the most 2020s thing you can and you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Joe Biden better be in that damn comic. Oh yeah. <laughs> but getting back to X Static or X Force yes. technically at this point. The rest of the new members that are introduced. Um, we already talked about Mr. Sensitive. There's Saint Anna, who's a healer. There is Vivisector, who's sort of a bookworm that turns, like, furry and bestial. Like, there's, like, a little bit of, like, werewolfy going on. Well, I guess it's, like, more werewolfy than anything else, not just a little bit. Also, it's, he like... He like, beast. Yeah. He's smart and furry and strong. Yeah. And he gets, like, a little of the immediate gay coding, just not as much as Bloke. But the narration saying, Offer of a critically acclaimed pamphlet on Walt Whitman. Yeah. Like, if you're a Whitman scholar and you're a heterosexual, frankly, I don't know how you could possibly arrive at that point in your life or why you did so. But... Anyway, we have Vivisector, the beast of the group. And then we get perhaps the most dated 2001 member of the team. I'm going to quote a lot of this narration again for FAT. That is P-H-A-T. It was the kind of background every actor, rock star, or mutant dreams of. Alcoholic mother abusive father, all wrapped up in a heady brew of illiteracy and racial intolerance. To escape the trailer parks of his youth, young Billy Bob Briley took to the streets. The streets were his home. The streets are his home. Yada yada, skip a little bit. He was not like other men. He carried with him the mark of the mutants. After rigorous training... Billy Bob developed an amazing control over his skin and subcutaneous gunk. And though he has proved an invaluable team member wherever he's fought, word is there's much more to be seen from fat. 
That's the ward from the street. Now, to be clear, because this is an audio medium, listeners, if you do not know, have not read the comic, this is a white character. So it's doing that sort of early 2000s joke of like, here's a white guy who, I don't even know how to describe this, but he's sort of that like early 2000s archetype of like, the white guy in the backwards cap who's into rap and like talks and acts in this specific way. Do you know what I'm talking about? He looks like vanilla ice. Yeah, exactly. Like that's exactly what the character's going for. Like, and he's pursing his lips in every single panel we see him in on this page. He's vanilla ice. The lip <laughs> note is a great note because you're completely right. And just what a power set visually of like here's a mutant whose power is like morphing body size and literally to make himself fat and yeah that and all the racial optics and just there's a lot going on with fat so like the bit where he's using it in combat that we can see where he's like it looks like he's inflating his limbs. I'm like, that looks cool. Some of the other stuff, I'm like, mm, yeah, you're right. This really hasn't aged very well at all. Yeah, like, I don't know. The thing of this book, which I guess to kind of go back to the ultimates of it all, is like, I wouldn't even necessarily say that it aged poorly because it's like, it's playing into that hyper-specific cultural moment but in a way that's clearly satirizing it, you know? Like, it's not it just it's a sincere, time. straightforward depiction of it. Like, it is satirizing it, so it doesn't really feel, like, as cringeworthy to look back on, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Sorry, um, I cut you off. Was there anything else about you were going to say? I was saying that, like, it it's so specifically of its moment on purpose, though. Like, it just is that moment. Yeah. Like, this is something that was, you know, they're like, okay, they weren't expecting someone to be looking at it in 20 years, or they didn't care about the people who'd be looking at it in 20 years, really. Yeah. With the rest of the team introduced, we get some drama around the new leader being named, Edie being pissed off because she felt like it should have been her, but it's been given to... Mr. Sensitive, who doesn't even want it. And, like, there's a bit of, like, laying the groundwork for the coming issues of, like, Coach gives the team their upcoming mission. I don't feel like that's really important to talk about in the context of this episode. You know, we're we're more just sort of talking about the concept of the team and these two issues unto themselves. But I do want to mention... At one of the press conferences, this X-Force is interrupted by the members of the classic X-Force. We get like Cannonball and Domino and Boom Boom showing up just mad at these celebrities for just taking the X-Force name and just being morally bankrupt assholes. And so the press conference just turns into this giant fight between the two X-Forces, 
who are all just sort of fighting about the right way to conduct yourself as a mutant. And, like, the right to the name X-Force. Yeah, because like you said earlier, before now, the book X-Force was about that classic team, you know, or, like, some extension of it. And then... These were all original members. Yeah. Well, kind of for Domino. Kind of. Because, like, wasn't Domino, like, a weird, like, imposter situation? Yeah, it was a copycat, Vanessa something, who's in the Deadpool movies, but is not, like, anything like that character at all. Okay. Which is dumb. They should do that. Because the actor they have playing her is cool. And she deserves more than being the girlfriend who's just going to get, like, endangered or fridged every movie. But yeah. Yeah, like yeah, this is like a classic X Force group. Yeah, and just like everything you said earlier about like, oh, this book was about normal X Force until suddenly this month, it's just this entirely new thing, and then within the text we get the old X Force echoing that sentiment, being like, "Hey, what the fuck?" Um, I also just. On on the early two thousands no, no theme, I need to note that at this point in time, Sam Guthrie Cannonball apparently does have a soul patch. Yep, there's gonna be a soul patch every time we cover a two thousand and one comic, isn't there? Yep, he looks older here than he does in comics now, because of the soul patch alone. And now he's got a kid. Yeah, but he still reads as like. 25 i think he's supposed to be 25 which probably you something know, like that i i i'm at the point where i'm like okay the new mutant should be 30 frankly screw you but you know whatever it's because i'm tired of getting older than all these comic book characters i'm about to be older than peter parker ever will be and i'm so annoyed and you will be doing so so young <laughs> that that's the Milligan and All Red X Force. Did you have any notes from this issue, from these issues that you wanted to touch on? Mm, not, not really. I think it's a really interesting, like satirization of celebrity culture in the early two thousands. Um, I, yeah, yeah, it's cool. They need to meet Mojo at some point. I really appreciate just how weird the book is. Like, the way that the creators were allowed to just make something so unrelated to the rest of the line, really. Because it's like, these are mutants, but they have nothing to do with anything else going on. Y'all just do your weird little satire book about reality TV for a couple years. It is kind of surprising that this exists in this form. And it lasts for a fairly good chunk of change. Like, between the X-Force and the X-Statics issues, there's like 30-some issues of this. Yeah, I, I've seen the Omnibus. It was pretty sizable. And yeah. now there's the new, like, excellent thing, which is that, like, a limited series? Is that ongoing? So there was one mini series, and now a second has started... And I assume it's another mini, but I don't know for sure. 
Mm, but we could wind up another mini. It's like a Sabretooth type situation. Okay. Yeah. Because Sabretooth, the first two volumes at least, the first, like, the two written by Laval just read like two different arcs in an ongoing. The way that Excalibur has had four different titles now, but it's still just the same book. The Captain Britain solo reads differently from Excalibur, uh, like a bit, because, you know, it is now mostly just Rachel and Betsy. And yes, I did order it that way, because that's the order in which I'm reading from the characters. But the Knights of X of it all. But Knights, Knights of X was just Excalibur. And I, I, I'm I, like, I'm sure it would have actually done better if you had just called it Excalibur. I don't know. Yeah. But anywho... These comics are weird. They're of a hyper-specific moment, and I like them a lot. If... The best one's Bloke. It's a great design. Bloke's a lot of fun, yeah. Just this big walking gay joke in a way that works. I like his power set because he's able to do like chameleon-like blending, and then is also like the big bruiser of the team. Like, the mixture of stealth and strength is not a thing you see very often. That's a fair point. Like, normally, whatever color he is just matches the walls around them. I'm like, okay, that's that's a neat idea. Yeah. Now, they don't do anything with it here because he's around for, like, six pages, but I'm sure they must do at some point. With that said, though, I guess we're pretty good on X-Force for the week. I I certainly recommend it. Sounds like... You at least liked it, even if you didn't necessarily love it. Yeah, I, as I said, I think it was quite good. I um, I I would need to read more, which I will when I get rounds. But like, this is on my list of things to read, even though it's not really relevant to anything else. Uh, but like, I I want to fully embrace the two thousand and one moment when I get there. And you know, right now I'm in, I, I, I right before onslaught. That's gonna be a bad time. It's already pretty rough. Speaking of right before Onslaught, though, should we talk about what we're going to be reading next week? Yeah. So next week, I'm going to make you read Generation Next. This is the Age of Apocalypse Generation X miniseries that replaced that title during the Age of Apocalypse, uh, which is, you know, I mean, art by Chris Bocciolo, and I know that you love... I think, well, you love Generation X, you also love this series, don't you? I will be curious to see how I feel rereading this series. I love the start of Generation X. The first time I read through, I think I honestly felt frustrated at Generation Next, just because with where it falls numerically, it happens so soon that it feels like it interrupts the main title really quickly. But I am going to be curious to reread it just on its own. And I love Chris Bocciolo. Yeah, the, the way it's four issues of Generation X and then the entire universe gets blown apart. And now we're in the Age of Apocalypse for four issues and it's just like a different thing. It's pretty It's pretty nuts. It's like bizarre that they introduced Generation X like then and not after Age of Apocalypse. It's just kind of awkward timing. Yeah, well, it's because they started ramping up and doing the events quicker. Because they had the Phalanx Covenant is what leads into Generation X. And then, like, 
Bayon's Covenant ends, and you have like maybe six issues of every title before again the universe just gets blown up and we're in Age of Apocalypse for a bit. Yeah. But AOA is, in my opinion, one of the best X-Men events. Like, it's actually really fucking good. At the very least, when you're reading through the 90s and you're reading all of the titles, getting to Age of Apocalypse at that point in 1995 is a relief. You're like, oh, oh, it's really cool and interesting again. It feels like it did back in the 80s where you're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen? So, yeah, reading the critically acclaimed Generation Next miniseries. And it'll be good to hit on an Age of Apocalypse book, too, for what you just said. Just such a specific, like, notable moment. It's yet another pick for me in Wet Hot Mutant Summer where you're like, this could have only happened in the span of four months because this literally did only happen in the span of four months. Yeah. Our theme this summer is largely niches, hyper-specific X-books. But with that said, there's your reading assignment for next week, Generation Next 1 through 4. Thank you all for listening, and bye. to each other.